Our children enjoy a book of riddles, picture riddles. They're entitled, the series entitled, I Spy. On each page, there's a photograph of of a very cluttered store window type of scene. And at the bottom of each page is a riddle calling upon the reader to find a certain object in the picture. So, for instance, there's laid out there a workbench in a wood toy shop. And on the bench, there are various wood hand tools, and there are piles of sawdust, and there are toys and various forms of completion. And you're called to spy, say, a little wooden bear, or a certain tool, or a red wheel, or something like that. Each scene is so cluttered, it's quite a challenge to find the specific objects called for. As I was looking at the book in preparation for this sermon, I was convinced that some of the things that were called for weren't in the scene. I thought, this is a children's book. I'm going back and forth trying to find the things that are buried in there that you're supposed to find. We've got, by the way, we're playing around with technology today. We can't afford any of this stuff, but it's on loan, so we're just having fun. But we have a picture here. I want you to see if you can find a pair of boots with some socks in it. Not too tough, is it? By the way, the riddles in the book don't ask for that because that's too easy, but they're right here. A pair of boots with socks in it. Can you find a hockey stick? See your hands. Let's play the game here. I mean, he's got the hockey stick. That's pretty obvious. All right, how about the white cat? Oh, we see who the quick ones are. They all sit in the front, you'll notice. So, <laughs> How about the locket? A little slower there, isn't it? All right, you see it? Some of you are still staring. See what I mean? It's hard, isn't it? A locket is right there. How many of you had no clue what a locket was? <laughs> see the men's hands that go up there. <laughs> I was pretty proud that I knew what that word was. But <laughs> um, How about a sled? You see the sled? Wow, that's pretty good. It's a little tougher, isn't it? There's a sled in there. Some of you still looking? A sled, uh, like a snow sled. Pretty hard, isn't it? There's a little sled right there. See, and I know it's tough on here with the picture, but I really, I'm heading somewhere with all this, all right? In some respects, our lives often read like an I spy book. The various scenes of our lives are cluttered with complicating, sometimes messy circumstances, and then we're called to spy God in the picture. Sometimes that's not so hard, but sometimes we find that very difficult indeed. We scan back and forth across the page, and we can't find that little sled or that little locket or God in the picture. You've been there. Maybe it's a season of loneliness, a season of boredom, of confusion or fear. Or maybe it's a physical trial, the betrayal of a friend, a financial problem, a significant loss, a frustrating responsibility, a relationship that is causing you all types of grief and trouble. Whatever the particulars of the scene, it's very cluttered. And you step back, but no matter how hard you stare at the picture... You cannot see a loving and wise God anywhere in it. Not in this picture. Well, Genesis 37 is one of those pictures. And according to 1 Corinthians 10, this narrative is recorded in the Bible so that we can study it and so that we can come back to our world challenged and encouraged and changed. This chapter is a beacon of light that can help you read the I Spy book of your life with skill and with joy. This light shines out of one of the darkest, ugliest stories in all of the Bible. God does not appear anywhere in this picture. Before our very eyes, the forces of evil dance all over this page of history with little restraint. We see in Genesis 37 human depravity and all of its ugliness, and God seems to be nowhere, and He seems to be doing absolutely nothing. Let's remember where we have progress thus far. Genesis chapter 37 and verse 2. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flock with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, 
his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other brothers because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a word, a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered round mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Look again at the picture of Joseph's family, Jacob's family. Remember that he is with Bilhah here, and or rather the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah as he is shepherding. He brings back a bad report, and there's great hostility that arises here within the family. Jacob's family is infected, in fact, with a severe case of sibling rivalry a parental favoritism, a bitter envy. Jacob foolishly and selfishly centers his parental attentions upon Joseph, and Joseph's brothers seethe with jealous hatred against their brother. The air is thick with the tension of family hostility. The scene is set for some very ugly fireworks. The key to it all are these two dreams. Joseph sees these two dreams, he understands what God is doing, his brothers understand what God is doing, and in these dreams, God stands forward and makes his intentions known. He declares through these dreams his sovereign will. Now at verse 12, God withdraws from the, back, from the foreground, rather, and he stands back, and he seems to blend in now with the surrounding circumstances. There are no miracles in these verses, if we go back to the I spy analogy, a miracle is like just one object in the scene. It's God, and it's the miracle that he's worked, and you can see it very clearly and very obviously. But God steps back in Genesis 37. The dreams are there in the first part of the chapter saying, here is God's will, here is God's intention. But now God steps back into the background in the surrounding circumstances. So there are no miracles. There is no voice from God. Just the seemingly unrestrained actions of fallen creatures whose evil decisions converge with the sovereign purposes of God. So we note in the first section here, beginning at verse 12, Joseph's father sends him to his brothers. The scene has been set. The hostility is clear. Jacob sends Joseph to his brothers. Beginning at verse 12. We see Joseph's commission from Jacob. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he set off from the valley of Hebron. Shechem. This is a long ways from home. So apparently Jacob's flocks had run out of grazing options. Perhaps Jacob selected Shechem. Remember, he bought a parcel of land here, chapter 33 and verse 19. That may be one of the reasons that he heads back. Um, Shechem is also, we remember, a fairly scary place for the children of Israel. Just two years earlier, Simeon and Levi had initiated the murder of many of the Shechemites living in the city proper, in the city-state of Shechem, we're not told why Joseph did not journey with his brothers at this time, if Jacob wanted to just hold him back, or going back to last week, perhaps the possible division of the sons down six uh, either way and uh, forming a group of shepherds here. We're not sure exactly why, because it is possible that not all the brothers were there, though it does seem from the text that they probably were. We don't know why, and of course that's really not necessary to us. 
But what we do know is that Joseph is now here commissioned. Joseph, you notice, does not initiate this trip. He is willing to make it. However, he honors his father's command, showing a healthy sense of responsibility and a considerable degree of courage to travel that far alone to check up on his brothers. I, maybe he had a donkey. We don't know. But he might have been on foot. We're talking about a 50-mile journey. So it's, it's a considerable uh, task. We look at the map here. We can see from Hebron down here. We don't know exactly where Jacob is located, but he's in the valley of Hebron, so somewhere in this region. And he sends Joseph all the way up to Shechem. Scared me. I thought something was happening to my little <laughs> pen here. Wow. <laughs> I told you we're playing around here today, but uh, it's just borrowed technology. But uh, 50 miles north of Hebron, so it's a very long and hard journey. Little did Jacob realize, can, think about this, the, the human element here, little does Jacob realize that he will never see Joseph in Hebron again. He hugs his son, he sends him on his way, he's so proud of this young man with this courage, 17 years of age, willing to take this long journey, dangerous journey, 50 miles north to Shechem. He never sees him here again. We see Joseph's journey then heading up to Shechem and then uh, from Hebron, first of all, from Hebron to Shechem. Notice the second part of verse 14 when Joseph arrived at Shechem and that's a fair place to divide the Hebrew text. Uh, but it, the point is he gets to Shechem. Verse 15, while he's there, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. <coughs> so Joseph, striking out north, making this long journey over many days, arrives at Shechem, and to his deep disappointment, he discovers that his brothers are nowhere to be found. This is where Father told them to go. Why aren't they here? Where could they possibly be? I, I can't go back without getting word to Father about this, where they're at, but I don't know where they're at and I don't know where to look. He's looking around. And so he says to this man that he finds there, can you help me out? And the man gives some excellent, uh, an excellent tip here. I heard them say, that, let's go to Dothan. Now these verses, we have to stop and consider here for a few moments. These verses are not wasted ink. Think about what has just happened here. Dothan, as you can see on the map, is 13 miles north of Shechem. What does that mean? There are no cell phones in this day. There are no global positioning devices to mount on the back of your donkey's head. You do not know where they are. They're nowhere to be found, which means they could be absolutely anywhere. Joseph's brothers are not where they're supposed to be. How is he ever going to find them? And they're 13 miles away. They're not just over in the next field or over on the other side of that hill over there. They're 13 miles away. And you're going very slowly by donkey or by foot. And the donkey doesn't necessarily go a whole lot faster. Might spare your feet a little bit, but it's tough going 13 miles away. The point is, he's never going to find them. Never, that is, unless this man shows up at this particular time. This anonymous man just happens to find Joseph wandering in a field. Young man, what are you looking for? I'm looking for my brothers. They're shepherds. They're grazing their flocks. They're supposed to be at Shechem. Do you have any idea? Have you seen anyone like that? He says, I think I have. But they've moved on from here. You, you just see, Joseph's heart stops right there. They've been here. Where are they? They've moved on. Do you know where they are? He does know where they are, probably. He says, I've overheard them. They said they were going to Dothan. Maybe they're there. And I'm sure there's more in the conversation here. Maybe, says Joseph. And what did they look like? How many of them were there? What, were, were they about this age? Were the flocks about this many? That's got to be them. They must be at Dothan. So he heads out. Now what do you say there? We look at the picture. We look at the scene. Dumb luck. Coincidence chance meeting, this man standing in front of Joseph just so happened to be within earshot of Joseph's brothers at just the moment they were discussing a move to Dothan. 
This man just so happened to remember what he overheard. For that matter, he could... Uh, think about that. It could, was it Dothan or was it the other way south? There's another town down there. I can't remember which one they said. He remembers what they said. And he could have died of a heart attack one hour before Joseph got there. But he didn't. He could have had the flu that day and not been able to get out of his tent. But he was there when Joseph was there. And he bridges the gap between the brothers... He was with them when he overheard the conversation and with Joseph on this day. Coincidence, chance, luck, or the providence of God? I have little doubt that Joseph replayed this quote-unquote chance meeting in his head a thousand times over in the years to come. If it hadn't been for this man, Joseph certainly would never have found his brothers. If it hadn't been for this man crossing his path at the right time, Joseph may have turned around and gone home. But in the providence of God, this man, at the right place, at the right time, with the important information, and on Joseph goes to Shechem, or rather from Shechem to Dothan. Verse 17, Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan, at long last, success. Mind you, Joseph did not know for sure his brothers were at Dothan. That was the tip he was following, but there were no guarantees, and here they are, over 60 miles. Take your pick by donkey or by foot. Joseph had to be exhausted, and he had to be very relieved. Little did he know what awaited him as he joyfully approached his brothers. Joseph's father sends him to his brothers. And now we find at verse 18 that Joseph's brothers send him to Egypt. Verse 18, but they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. They plotted. The Hebrew word is to scheme with craft. Here comes that dreamer. This Hebrew phrase could be translated something like the dream king. Here comes the dream lord, the ruler over dreams. Here he is. It's a taunt dripping with sarcasm and bitter contempt. Notice again the particular source of their anger is what? It's the dreams. Joseph's dreams, they have determined, are nothing but the subconscious belch of Joseph's pride and his sense of entitlement. But they are, in reality, dreams which actually indicate the sovereign will of God. And so what's the conclusion? Whether they know it or not, these men conspire to frustrate the will of the sovereign God, the ruler of heaven and earth. That's not a good plan, gentlemen. That is never a good plan. But they set out on it. They care not to listen to this dream, these dreams. They care simply to silence their brother. Verse 20, Come now, they say, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Yes, indeed, they would. But what good fortune for them at this moment. Here he is, the hated brother, robed in that despicable tunic. No one to protect him. Let's kill him. Let's kill him right now. They hatch a plan. They'll deposit his body in a cistern, dip his robe in blood, an animal's blood, and tell Jacob that a wild animal had devoured Joseph. And so they plot to kill a man who has just journeyed 60 miles to find out about their welfare. They hate him intensely. But the hand of God's providence now moves behind the scenes. And on this very dark page of history, the Spirit of God stands forward ever so slightly and whispers in the ear of one of the brothers. And Reuben responds, verse 21, When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. Reuben does not show courage here. This is not courageous leadership. He works behind his brother's backs hoping to trick them. He is unwilling to directly confront them. And I think that is a clear implication of the text which will be borne out later. The phrase, take him back to his father, may indicate a sense of responsibility on Reuben's part. Who's Reuben? Remember back to the family graph, the chart there. He's the firstborn. He is number one. 
And in this setting, in this time, that was a position of responsibility. Reuben has violated his responsibility already. But here he may perhaps be seeking to exercise that responsibility to protect his brother. But again, he does so by seeking to deceive his other brothers. Reuben's plan is really then self-oriented and less than noble. He wants to clear himself. He was really not, if he was really concerned about Joseph, he would later tell Jacob what had really happened. He never does. He just cares about his own neck. He's afraid, and he's indecisive, and he uses deception. Let's stop for a moment here, because this is just a sideline, but I think it's an important point of application. God never needs your deception to advance his cause. Fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, children, in all of those various relationships, as an employer, as an employee, God does not need deception to advance his cause. He never does. To suffer for righteousness is far better than to permit fear to win out over character. We need to avoid a guilty conscience first and avoid pain second. Reuben does it exactly in the opposite direction. So here comes Joseph, his heart probably welling up with relief and the euphoria of a mission accomplished. He could probably almost see himself even embracing these brothers. He's so happy to see them. But as he approaches, he realizes something is desperately wrong. Verse 23, So when Joseph came to, the, to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Archaeologists have unearthed many cisterns in Palestine. They were bottle-shaped, hand-dug reservoirs in the earth, usually about 6 to 20 feet in depth. There was a long, narrow shaft that was first dug. To begin the digging up here, this is the, uh, the ground line. They just dig this narrow shaft here, and then as they worked their way through, they would barrel out the cavity to allow water to pass through. Perhaps there'd be a spring, say, here that was coming into the cavity. They would wall up the sides with, with a, a block, with stone, so that this cavity would retain the water. You remember this even with, with Jacob. Remember the stone that he pulled off the well uh, as he was in uh, Haran? Uh, the big, large stone would often be here, and uh, they'd pull the stone off and dip uh, the, the bucket down through a rope here to get the water. But as these wells, as often was the case, say with an earthquake or something, they would break up and there would be a, a crack in the well. So if the water's flowing in from this side, it might just continue to run right through and the well would become dry. In that situation, these old wells, these dry wells, serve very well and, and fairly typically as prisons. You're not going to get out of there. They don't really have to worry about you. Uh, they drop you down through the hole, and it's a prison. So this all would have been uh, very obvious to them as they're thinking through this. There's this dry well. Now, we don't know if that's for famine or because it's old and cracked. That, that, that really is not the issue here. But it's a dry well. They strip Joseph of his robe. Picture this now. As you walk toward them, maybe you can even find it in your heart to give these brothers a hug and you're hoping that they're going to do the same thing, and you say, I found you, and here they are. They grab you, they probably throw you to the ground, tear off this robe that causes so much trouble in their minds. They shove Joseph down then this narrow shaft. Now, it was large enough to receive a body, obviously. That's how they would dig out the, the, the sister. Uh, they would drop down in there, and so it had to be big enough to take a body, but it was also generally a very narrow shaft. And it's very probable that with his bare skin, he was scraped as he went down and probably forced down. And can you imagine that horrible feeling then of letting go of the sides of that shaft and dropping down that extra distance and hitting the ground hard, sitting up in that cool, dark cavity and craning his neck to look up at the dim light cascading down through the shaft and echoing in that cavernous cell the laughter an exuberant jeering of his brothers. According to chapter 42, Joseph pleaded with his brothers to spare him. 
We get the picture. There he is at the bottom of this cistern, yelling up at them and pleading that they will deliver him from this sure death. He probably spared no rhetorical flourish at all, appealing to every good thing he could ever think of inside of their hearts, but to no avail. With no outer cloak and no food or water, Joseph would not last long in such a place. He was destined, it appeared, to die here in this large grave. And speaking of food and evidencing again the utter cruelty of his brothers, verse 25, as they sat down to eat their meal. They sat down and ate. They've plotted to kill their brother and they don't even suffer an upset stomach from it. Their callous indifference is chilling. They act, of course, oblivious to the circumstances that will mark their next meal in Joseph's presence. More on that later. But at this meal, Joseph moans under their feet. At the next, he will preside over them. While they're eating, a cloud of dust on the horizon, probably, it catches their attention, and it's a caravan, verse 25. A caravan, they look up and see a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices and balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Ishmaelites, a general term for nomadic travelers. These Ishmaelites were, of course, distant relatives, sharing Abraham as their father. But their caravan is loaded with valuable extracts that would bring a favorable price in Egypt, probably likely used, among other ways, in the embalming trade. So as they approach, a thought crosses Judah's mind. Verse 26, Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. At this place in the text, and this is very important to watch as we interpret the narrative over the weeks to come as God gives us light and opportunity. Judah stands forward as the leaders of his brothers. Now remember, he's the fourth son of Leah. Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, the three older brothers of Leah, have disqualified themselves from leadership, but Judah stands forward as the leader here. And remember, he does not know what Reuben's thinking. He doesn't know that Reuben intends not to just leave him right there in that cistern and walk away. Reuben is using deception to try to free uh, Joseph. Judah doesn't know that. So Judah stands forward really among all of his brothers and comes up with a little softer plan. Now, it's really obviously not a much more pretty picture selling, them, selling him as a slave. But Judah stands forward as the voice of reason and objects to the murder of his brother. This is again a sign or an evidence of the providential hand of God behind the scenes. This is evil, is it not? This is evil. Now we know how the story turns out, but let's stop and think about it as if for the first time. This is evil. Is it noble to sell your brother as a slave? Yet God uses Judah's sin to spare Joseph's life. We're choosing here between murder and slavery. God just carefully, almost without perception, steers Judah to this idea and the brothers to agree with him. Is it chance that puts that caravan at Dothan just then? Is it chance that Judah comes up with this thought just then as he sees that caravan? Is it just chance that Reuben is not here? Is it chance the timing of Joseph's wanderings at Shechem bringing him to Dothan as this caravan crosses and chooses to cross the Jordan River and head down on this particular route, right past this scene and this particular cistern. He doesn't die, but he's enslaved. Verse 28, So when the Midianites' merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Midianites, 
Ishmael, broader term, Midianites, more narrow term. So they see them from a distance. These are generally, this is a, just a caravan of Ishmaelites. As they come closer, we realize they're Midianites. And they sell them to these nomadic caravanners. From closer up, they're identified. At any rate, the, they transport Joseph as a common slave to Egypt. Now, a couple things here, and I'd like to take a few moments. Joseph was not in that cistern very long, it doesn't appear. But you can rest assured he took a long, hard look at the specter of death. As he looked up into the light of day through that shaft, and he realized that his brothers had left him. And his pleadings had gone unheard. He stared death in the face. Can you imagine the effects, the horror of death by starvation and exposure in a cistern would have upon your mind at 17 years of age? Can you imagine the relief he felt then when a rope was dropped down to him and he was hauled back up into the light of day? Probably thinking as he's coming up, they've come to their senses, this horror is over. There's an interesting observation that uh, Bush suggests here, one commentator. And that is that in that short stay in that pit, God prepared Joseph to face every horror on the road ahead of him. And there were many. Nothing he faced in the future would ever be as bad as the death he knew he had just escaped on this day. Even slavery looked pretty good compared to what might have been, and in a sense, to what was for a few moments. But let us not minimize here what, Joseph has, what has happened to Joseph as we see him hauled away by the Midianite traders. Again, his heart probably lifting, thinking his brothers had come to their senses, then to find himself journeying southward with Midianites into slavery in Egypt. Now let's imagine, it's a horrible thought, but let's just imagine for sake of discussion here. That you go home this afternoon, you leave church, you turn the corner, and there's your house in flames. It's not only in flames, it is an intense inferno, and you have lost everything. What have you lost as you turn that corner and you see your house in flames? You've lost some things you'll never replace. You've lost some mementos and some pictures and all those organizational projects that you've done and all the time that you've invested in cleaning and keeping up and repairing and all of that stuff is gone. That old shirt that you love to wear on days off that nobody can understand why you like to wear it, that's gone. Never to be replaced. You've lost a lot of things. But I want you to think about what you've not lost. There's an awful lot that you've not lost too, isn't there? There's probably a friend or a relative who's going to come around you this afternoon, if that's the scenario, and they're going to say, come on over for supper tonight. And they're going to do the best they can to encourage you, to feed you food, and to say to you, we love you, we care for you, we're sorry this has happened, but we're here for you. And you are probably going to, well, you will keep your freedom. You'll keep your freedom. You will keep many things through insurance that you can replace, and probably somewhere down the road you'll replace that old shirt with another one. But you're still free. You still live in your country. You still live in familiar surroundings. You st people around you still talk your language. What has Joseph lost? He's lost all of that. He has lost, except for his health and his body, he has lost everything. No home. He doesn't know one person in his world anymore. Not one person. No family. No friends. He doesn't speak the language. He doesn't really understand the culture. He's lost his freedom. He's lost every opportunity to worship God at one of the altars in Canaan. He has lost it all. Except for his person, everything that means anything to a human being is stripped away from Joseph in that moment. Imagine the longing in his heart for his father and his home, the utter anguish as that caravan keeps journeying southward, a little too far to the east, but right past Hebron. He loses it all. And what has Jacob, 
Or what has Joseph, for that matter, done to deserve this? I should probably mention just Joseph here. What has Joseph done to deserve this? Where was God in all of this? Nothing seems to be going right. Nothing seems to be fair. Evil dances on the pages of history. Where could God possibly be in all of this? At this point, we learn that Reuben was not with his brothers while this transaction took place. Perhaps he was caring for the flock while the others ate. Maybe he did have an upset stomach because of what was going on. And he, maybe he didn't want to, just felt he needed to get out of there so that his scheme wasn't revealed. But Reuben's not with them at the moment. Verse 29, when the sale takes place, when Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there, where can I turn now? Again, his focus seems to be on his responsibility as the firstborn and again seems to be on himself. Where can I turn now? He doesn't really care. It doesn't seem about Joseph or about Jacob and the trial that he is soon to endure. But Reuben sadly turns. Where can he turn? He turns with his brothers to the all too familiar practice in this family, deception. Joseph's father sends him to his brothers. His brothers send him to Egypt and now Joseph's brothers return and report to Jacob, verse 31. When they got Joseph's ro- then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, and, and by the way, the Hebrew text reads, they sent the robe back to their father, and then later they arrive, probably sending it by the hand of a servant, and then they arrive and say, we found this, examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. The brothers arrive and play the part of master deceivers. As Hamilton writes, they are careful not to say too much. The power of suggestion is greater than the power of explanation. They will let Jacob draw his own conclusions. And he does, verse 33, he recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. Tore his clothes, a sign, a symbol of mourning. Sackcloth, a rough garment, often made of camel's hair and worn close to the body, is a sign of mourning and even to heighten the misery of the moment. Jacob was in the throes of bitter grief. His beloved Rachel is gone, and now his favored son Joseph is gone. It seemed more than Jacob could possibly bear. Apparently, sometime later, all of Jacob's children and family rose up and made a special attempt to comfort him, verse 35. All his sons and daughters, daughters could be daughters-in-law, if just Dinah, there might have been more daughters. There's no reason to say that there couldn't have been. But his, his family is the point. His sons and daughters come to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning I will go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept. Him. Jacob would not be comforted. What he needed right here was the truth. But his sons had gone too far with this ruse to turn around now, at least they thought. And due to their deception, how many tortured thoughts of second guessing Jacob had to endure. Why did I send him alone? Why did I send a son so young and inexperienced? Why did I ever send him after his brothers? They are here and he is gone. How bitter the weeping, how hideous the nights of tossing and turning for Jacob. How he longed to see his son again, to watch him with pride, the pride that he had as he left Hebron for Shechem. How he longed to hug him and to talk to him, but his beloved Joseph, like his beloved wife, was gone. We we are reminded here, it is a bitter note, but we are reminded that we do reap what we sow. Many years ago, think about this, I don't think this is coincidence. Many years ago, with the blood of a goat and his brother's clothes, Jacob had deceived his father Isaac. Now many years later, with the blood of a goat and their brother's clothes, Jacob's sons deceive him. And it is a bitter, bitter deception. 
Jacob should have asked more questions, certainly. And it might be a point for us to gather there as well. In one sense, he did not distrust his sons enough. In another sense, he was too quick to believe the worst. We cannot really blame Jacob for assuming Joseph was dead, but his experience might be a little light for us, and it's been my experience at times. I've learned from it. We need to be reminded that when we receive bad news, filter it carefully. Filter it in the wisdom of God. Often matters are not nearly as hopeless as people present them to be. Just a note. Now, I don't think that's the point of this, and I don't think that's Jacob's failure here. It's a very human error, but he didn't think through it. He assumed the worst, he accepted the worst, and he, in a sense here, it's very unintentional, he, in a sense, determines what providence will be when he does not know what providence will be. The facts were, this was his son's robe. Where his son was, Jacob had no idea but he nearly tortures himself to death with grief at the possibility. And what he concludes is reality. Meanwhile, verse 36, the Midianites sold Joseph to Egypt to Potiphar, in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So in Jacob's mind, Joseph is gone. In God's vision, Joseph has arrived in Egypt and is now a slave. But we ask again, where is God in this whole mess? We need to see it. And we are able to see it from our perspective. This is the beauty of Scripture. This is one of the beauties of these Old Testament narratives. We can stand back from our place in history, from a bird's eye view, look at it, and here's the thing, or it's all been wasted today in all of this search. It's the same world for you. It's in any different God doesn't treat Joseph any differently. He doesn't operate any differently today. It's the same world for you and for me. He's there. You see what the problem is with that whole analogy where we started this morning of finding God in the I spy picture. The problem is God isn't in that picture. God arranges the picture. God's not hidden in there that, like, that, like that little sled or that locket. God is the photographer He's the one behind the scenes at times. He is the center of the picture at other times, but he's not a little part of the picture. He's behind the scenes, and he's working his grace and his mercy and his providential plan to perfection. Yes, the picture of the various scenes of our lives are often cluttered and complicated. Sometimes it's downright ugly. But God never stops steering this world to the end for which he made it. One commentator says very well, consider this sentence. Far from preventing Joseph's dream, the brothers actually became the agents of fulfilling it. God is never at a loss for the sin of people. Is there someone whose sin is causing great misery in your life? Please be sure and confident God is not wringing his hands in heaven and at a loss for what to do. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he will do, and he will work through the evil of people to accomplish his purposes. Far from preventing Joseph's dream, the brothers actually became the agents of fulfilling it. This is a hopeless scene for Joseph and Jacob. We're not minimizing that. But God had a perfect plan and he was working it out. For Joseph and Jacob, there were tears and untold heartaches that were very real and to, in some respects very legitimate. But unbeknownst to them, joy was poised to meet them on the road ahead and great glory. How will Joseph respond to the divine dreams in light of these setbacks? Will he walk forward in faith? Will he trust God's hand? And this is really the issue for us. Will we trust in God's sovereign hand in the circumstances of life? Will we believe 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 17? Turn there if you will as we 
very briefly as we close in just a few moments. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 17. Here is light for us on this side of the cross. And here is the bridge that tells us that what we see in Joseph's life is equally applicable in our own. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 17, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know how that's going to play out in heaven, but I can know by faith that it's real. Joseph, the dreams will come true. Yes, slavery is miserable. Yes, your brother's torture is miserable. You should know it's miserable. You should know it is sin. But there's a God in heaven and your dreams will come true. And Christian, your troubles are achieving for you an eternal glory that far outweighs the trouble. You're going to put in glory all of the trouble and the difficulty and the trial over here, and you're on this side of the weight, and you're going to put over here all of the glories of heaven and the reward that is gained as you suffered. And this side will outweigh this side dramatically. God won't owe you one through eternity. So, so what? Verse 18, so fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but what is unseen, for what is seen is temporary, and can I add these words in there, and depressing, discouraging, heart-wrenching, difficult. What is temporary, what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Whatever it is, there's no trial, there's no difficulty, there's no person, there's no circumstance that you're going through that is permanent. Any negative of these areas, none of it's permanent. What's permanent is heaven and glory. Fix your eyes there. Look at that. While we remain faithful to the God who has chosen us and loved us, who is working all things together for good. We fix our eyes on what is eternal. Will we grow to understand that God is not an object buried somewhere or other in the many scenes of our lives, but that He is the sovereign author, the arranger, the artist who rules heaven and earth to His glory? And there's some times when his purposes and the good in the scene is like that little locket in the picture we looked at or like that little sleigh that you can't seem to find very easily. But he's behind the scene. He knows what he's doing. And glory awaits. Little did Joseph think that he would look back on these terrible circumstances as necessary and even good links in the chain of divine providence. And may we learn from his example that God never rests, that hope never dies, and that glory awaits us at the end of life's road if we know Christ as Savior. And may these truths drive us forward in patient endurance of every bitter providence that we experience by God's appointment bow for prayer. Father, frankly, these are truths that some people don't believe. Not in reality. Not when it comes to the difficulties of life. They see a world where there is wickedness and evil and sorrow and they throw up their hands and say there's wickedness and evil and sorrow and they don't come to terms with your place in it. 
God, what unnecessary suffering we endure when we fail to see your glory in the events of our lives, even the wicked and bitter events. But I pray that you would help us as a church to honor these truths of your word, to trust in them, and as we sung earlier, to place our hope in heaven. And as we've read here <coughs> in 2 Corinthians 4, to fix our eyes on what is eternal. Oh God, what you are doing. We can hardly fathom it. We can hardly understand it. But God, we cling to it in hope and in faith. Please, Lord, I pray in your grace, help us to see your hand. Is there one among us who knows you not as Savior? We plead that they would come to repentance, that you would enlighten their eyes and that they would see clearly their need to turn from sin and to accept your salvation, to submit to it, to give in, letting go of their sin and embracing the salvation message of Christ trusting it with all their heart and clinging to it with all their being. God, even as we pray that prayer, we know that it's your hand behind the scene that allows us to cling. We trust that sovereign work, though we don't understand how you arrange the pictures. We know, as your word makes very clear, that you are the author of it all. We trust you in this, and I pray that our faith would grow. Our faith needs to grow. There's some of us who don't believe these truths and there's some of us who don't believe them when the heat gets turned up high enough. We pray, God, that you will patiently and graciously walk us forward one step at a time to realize your great power and authority and how it interplays with human responsibility and free will. Lord, that you will point us to yourself in saving faith and then in obedient walk. Blessed to this end, we pray. We will thank you for what you're pleased to do through the Spirit's power in us. In Christ's name, amen.